Hello there and welcome to Racehorse Movies, the show where two film fans take a racing sheet from last week, pick a random horse name for each other and from that name pitch a movie. In the pitch, to flesh out our movie ideas, we may include such things as stars, directors, composers, best boys and stable boys. Maybe not that last one. Hoping none of our ideas have to be put behind a screen and shot. The sky's the limit, the horses are on the starting line, the jockeys are frothing. It's time for Racehorse Movies. Hello there and welcome to another episode of uh, Racehorse Movies, everyone. Uh, I'm joined by my extremely good friend, uh, Mr. Graham Thomas. Hello there. And my name is, of course, Luke Sell, and we will be pitching a couple of uh, movie ideas this week based on a couple of horses that we picked from a race last week and also be having a little chat about things we've watched, how we're doing and a general catch up. Uh, so... That is what we're going to do. Let's do it. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> that's my that's my mission statement. That's what we're doing, isn't it? That is pretty good. Um, all right. Well, yeah. How are you? How you been, man? Nice to see you. I've been very well. It was uh, it was very nice to see you actually in the flesh, which was an absolute treat for both of us the yes. other night, man. And went to see some live music, which was marvelous. It was really nice, wasn't it? We yeah. went. To, who did we go see? We went to see Will Schaff, uh or the man behind Ockerville River. And uh, they put on a cracking show for us at the uh, Omera, I believe it was, wasn't it? That's right. The Omera at London Bridge is a lovely, um, lovely venue. Really mm. kind of nicely shabby kind of theatre, preceding March theatre. Uh, it was really good. I think a lot of the times lately, when I go to live concerts, I've got into this, like happily gone into spoiler territory where I've probably Googled the set list from the show before mm-hmm. and seen what kind of songs they've played and, and made playlists based on that. But this time I, I don't know anything by Will Chef at all. So it was nice to go in completely blind or deaf, I guess. <laughs> I guess deaf, yeah. yeah I, I guess, guess deaf. deaf. Yeah. Um, and just have it wash over me and experience it and be surprised and thrilled and not have that um, kind of hopeful anxiety that, that they're going to play this <laughs> or the immediate disappointment that you sometimes get or you hear in the crowd after a gig, oh, they didn't play that. Yeah, you've yeah. had two beautiful hours of music, but you still, oh, I wish they played that. Um, oh, and speaking of music, yeah, we've done something, haven't we? We certainly have. What a wonderful Wogan-esque segue you've just hit us with there, Graham. We Thank absolutely have. We've got some uh, ear treats, I believe, lined up for our we listeners, haven't do. we? We do indeed. Um, what have we done? What have we done? Well, um, tying into a chat we had a couple of weeks back, um, and one of the pitches, Love and Jukebox, uh, the uh, Vietnam thriller uh, that we were uh, banding around as an idea, um, I've knocked together a bit of a playlist uh, that I think would uh, suit that movie. So we've got we're we're going into the uh into the imaginary even further here man and we have imagined the soundtrack that would be released alongside love and jukebox so uh it's so good so we've set up a spotify account um later on down the line maybe we'll set up accounts on other streaming platforms we're not sponsored by spotify but the handle is the never press so if you go on uh, search for our profile the never press you might find a couple of other playlists but more specifically you'll find the most excellent Love in Jukebox playlist, which I have listened to nonstop over this week. It's so good. Going back to the pitch that you beautifully presented to us, all those songs that they're not the typical songs you'd hear in a Vietnam film. You know, it's not Buffalo Springfield, it's not Credence. You know, it's it's different artists, different players, and such great surprises in there, but woven together in such a great way that you just feel that whole movie. It's I was so trying, well, yeah, I was trying to like uh, uh, give the feel of the movie as it happens. So the mid mid mm-hmm. way through, it gets a little bit more like uh, esoteric and a bit strange and a bit like mm-hmm. weird and scary, and then 
pulls itself out, but ends melancholia in with a sense of melancholia towards the end kind of a thing. So hopefully, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed. Fantastic. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. And, uh, so yes, you can listen to it on shuffle, but we recommend listening to it front to back. Absolutely. And get the narrative of the movie. And I, I, I really liked the idea, and I like the way that you put it together. So maybe for future appropriate films. We might put together a little soundtrack. So I, I think, think absolutely. Nice. I think that'd be a really nice thing to do. So yeah, head over to Spotify for the Neverpress handle to check out the Love in Jukebox playlist. First of many, I hope. So we had wonderful music. Have you seen anything? Mm. Have you watched anything this uh, this um, last week? Uh, what have I been watching? I caught a amazing screening of Mulholland Drive <sighs> at the BFI the other day. First time I've seen it since it came out, I think, or maybe I saw it. It came out in two thousand and one. I probably saw it in 2002 or three at university. Yeah. First first time I've seen it since then. Much as I love David Lynch's films, I find sometimes... They're hearty meals. They're, they're hearty not, meals. Uh, and they're not, they're not typically things I'd go back to so often. Even though when I do, I know I'm going to have an incredible journey, an incredible time, such a great cinematic experience. Similar to... Uh, other than The Fly, similar to films by David Cronenberg. Oh, it, takes me, yeah. it takes me a while to build up to you see need a one certain, of his films, uh, except You need fly. a certain amount of energy to be able to uh, go into one of those films, yeah. I think, because they right, take, take right from space. you as much as they give, and that's part of the beauty of them, mm. but it's also that can be hard work. Yeah, it was great. So, yeah, we saw Mulholland Drive, which was so fantastic to get back into that. That movie is so beautifully shot and strange and, well, Lynchian. And uh, what about you? I, I mean, I'm going to feel terrible following up as an artistic uh, uh, work such as Mulholland Drive with my two films, but I saw uh, because mm-hmm. of my uh, ongoing uh, Gerard Butler fascination, um, which probably started around Den of Thieves, that really uh, sort of <sighs> quite yes. David Ayer-esque, uh, grubby. Uh, it's very grubby, heat. isn't it? sort of heat mixed with the Fast and the Furious thing that happened a couple of years ago that nonetheless uh, captivated me by just how he looked and how hulking <laughs> and uh, and alpha yeah. and and it was like watching a, an animal uh, on screen. Yeah. I, I was quite, and, and I can't remember what the uh, romantic films Butler did back in the day. It's something oh, like The Notebook or... Oh, he did a P.S. I Love You? That P.S. I Love You, that's exactly the badger. Uh, and he has come such a, he, he's it, physically, uh, he's come such an interesting mm. way since then. And he's turned into this like big muscled sort of melty parrot of a man, but in a really compelling, <laughs> interesting way, man. So I watched Plane, which is just uh, a plane. I saw Plane. Oh, have yeah. you seen Plane? Fantastic. I have seen Plane, right. yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I like uh, a couple of lines that were wonderful from it and give you a flavour of what Plane is like is... Uh, I never thought I'd have to say this. We need to ditch. Like, that was a good one. <laughs> As an airline pilot, you probably do think you might have to say it. I think that's probably a thing that you have to practice saying. Probably, yeah. Like, a lot. I think, like, ditch, ditch, ditch. I can imagine it being said like that in training school If you well. said this is something I never thought I'd have to say, but abandon ship, then that would might be a bit, a bit difficult for an airline pilot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. I'd have to say this, but up periscope. <laughs> Um, yes, and uh, like also, can you drive this thing? Yeah, I can drive anything, which yeah, I found to just be completely boastful and was never proven <laughs> to actually happen for the rest of the movie. He only <laughs> drove the one thing that he sat in. They're doing a sequel. <laughs> a boat. They are. No, swear, swear down, I don't know if Jared Butler's in it, but the other guy, Mike Coulter. Yeah, 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 from um, Luke Cage. Or Luke Cage, that's exactly yeah. it, yes. Yeah, apparently they've green. This isn't just going to sound like a joke. They've greenlit a sequel based on Mike Coulter's character... And it's called Ship. 
Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was interesting. I also went, took myself to the cinema to uh, see Ant-Man Quantumania. I saw that a few weeks back as well. Yeah, that was very green screeny. Uh, it felt mm-hmm. very Phantom Menacey, man. Um, yeah. Like, no one was anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just found it really dull. Yep. Cool. Well, that's what we've been doing. Um, Mulholland Drive, Ant-Man and Plane. Wow. But we have been to some beautiful light scene, or heard some beautiful live music, so... Yeah, exactly. I'm planning for a holiday. We've been busy bees. We have been busy bees indeed, but that doesn't mean we don't have time to pitch some racehorses. Absolutely. So, should we get into it? Let's do it. Okay, so um, let's do some horses. Where are we going to? Where have we come from? What are we doing? Big questions. We came from the uh, 140 uh, at Taunton, this was. Um, and the British Racing School 40th Anniversary Celebration Handicap Hurdle. That is exactly the one. And hurdle mm. they did, so I'm told. They did. They did. A and good 10 hurdles. I believe um, I gave you, sir, uh, Broomfield's Cave. You did, and I gave you the Rain King. Rain spelt R-A-I-N. Thankfully, yes. Although if it, was, uh, if it was rain the other way, I would have been tempted by a Rain of Fire sequel, which would have been uh, very Ooh, satisfying in its own way. That would have. Yeah. 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 We'll save that, that one for the next rain pun. Okay. All right. Well, shall I go first? You went first the last couple of times. I'm going to go first. And, of course, like last weekend, going forward, we find a lot of fun and enjoyment in the development of these ideas rather than sitting here listening to something fully formed. So I've got, I've got the story. I got the things, but there's going to be some push and pull and some development coming forward, I think. Um, so, yeah, basically what I've done is I've just written bullet points and it says things like battle, <laughs> conflict, <laughs> dra- drama. Gun, Chekhov. Yeah, Minor points, minor points. Okay, so this is my pitch for Broomfield's Cave. England, 1650-ish. During the War of the Three Kingdoms, Robert Bloomfield wakes up in his little abode in his hamlet, kisses his wife, puts on his clothes, leaves his little his little house, his little village. And as he's walking through the fields, he's in um, a nice rural bucolic area, maybe in Hampshire or something like that. He's walking through the fields and he's joined by a few other men and they're having jolly japes each one um, with a musket and, you know, pikes and swords. They're kind of, a few more men join. And as you as the scene develops, you see that they're joining a column for an army. They're off to a battle. And as the men talk, they talk about, you know, their lives and what's going to happen. But there's a sense of camaraderie amongst them. But for Robert, uh, for Robert Bloomfield, he's kind of a quiet, reserved one. And you can see in his eyes, there's a slight sense of apprehension because obviously he's going to battle but he doesn't have quite the he hasn't got the vim and the gusto and the bravado of the other lads that he's marching with and um alongside his little group in this column a priest kind of runs up beside them and starts you know helping praying for them and all the men are shaking his hand saying thank you father and the priest uh says to robert bloomfield you know uh, God be with you, you're righteous in what you're doing. So he's quite, the priest is quite kind of fervent in his belief. I was going to say somewhat fanatical, I assume, yeah, I guess. fanatical, yeah. but he, yeah. you know, the men with him, like, thank him for his, uh, thank him for his blessings. And he takes Robert aside, because he, Robert, he senses in him is apprehensive. He doesn't take the 
the blessings. He doesn't kiss the rosary or whatever it is as they're walking along. And he says, you know, what's wrong with you, son? Um, God is coming. God is going to look after you. God is protecting you. And Robert, who's, you know, a, a lowly man, he's not an angry man in any kind of way. He's suffered like many people have suffered during that time. He's lost children to illness and stuff like that. So he's, and he says to the priest, look, I, I just feel inside me that there's a hole. There's something unfulfilled. I, I, I lie when I, when I take confession. I lie in church. And I can tell you this now because I'm going to battle and I'm, I'm going to die. This is, I'm not a soldier. I'm kind of a hired hand. I don't know this. I don't want to do this. But I'm going, this is my duty to, you know, for the cause or whatever. I'm going to yeah, defend yeah. and fight. But I have been lying. I don't have any feeling. I've, I feel empty inside. And the priest is kindly to him, says, you know, you do your, you, you do your best. And if you survive, then if you survive what's coming, then that will show you that God is there and God loves thee. And Robert says, okay, look, I'll do your deal because he thinks he's going to die. So Robert says, look, if I do survive yep. this, then maybe you're right and God is true and God is good and God has spared me. And if he has done that and it is true, then I will come back and I will take full confession with you and I'll repent all my sins because I will have found God and he would have saved me for a better life for my family. And the priest says, I bless you, well done. Good. And he sends them off to the battle and the, they rejoin the column. The column gets bigger and they march over the hill to the battlefield. And as they get into the battlefield, you see this like, incredible expanse of people, just thousands of people in cavalry and cavalry as they're waiting for this battle. And then um, the battle commences and it's an area of warfare we don't usually see in movies. It's kind of roundheads and cavaliers, he kind of stuff with the muskets and handheld and yeah, incredibly yeah, yeah. brutal and... Game of yeah, yeah, just at that point where you've you've got guns, you've got projectiles, but mm. none of them are very good. Mm. Not that there's a such a thing, but good at killing someone. <laughs> it's just good at yeah, it's just good at wreaking horrific damage against people to stop them from yes. working, kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah like that. exactly. Yeah. And it's the kind of think during my vague research during the the civil wars, the War of the Three Kingdoms, and the British Civil Wars. Um, battlefield ordnance started to develop a lot more. Cannons got bigger. They weren't fit. They weren't fixed positions so much on boats or on castles. They were movable, so you yep. had batteries yeah, attached and stuff. to a horse or yeah. a couple of men or whatever. Yeah. So the battlefield started getting a bit more kind of <laughs> slightly more dangerous. I guess I don't know. They're pretty dangerous. Ten anyway. percent <laughs> more dangerous. All right, lads. I just want to warn you: the battlefield <laughs> is a little bit dangerous yes. today. Now, if you wanted to make an omelette, you're going to get hit by a cannon. More. <laughs> Um, so anyway, so the battle starts and it's just obviously absolutely horrendous, super, super graphic, super frightening. Absolutely overwhelming. And, and Every, uh, you can't go where everything's going on all around you. It's not and you don't know who you're fighting at this point either. You're just yes. fighting to stay up and yes. s stay in one piece or as many pieces as you can do it under the circumstances. Ex exactly. And um, through... Robert Bloomfield's eyes on the battlefield, we, you see the mania of men, you see the ecstasy of men, you know, that everything's just crazy. And then the cannons start firing, and which is a whole new thing for some people. They've never even seen a cannon, let alone what a cannonball can do to the ground and to men's bodies. And Eesh. it's yeah. just really just levels up the whole battle. So it's a huge opening set piece. And as the cannons are thumping down on the ground, the ground's like shaking and moving and the whole thing's heightening, heightening, heightening. And uh, Robert Moonfield's knocked to the ground and he's kind of screaming and crying as he's digging into the mud to try and, as men are also trying to get away. And then he notices that the ground really is in between the batteries. It really is shaking. It really is moving and something's happening. And then 
an earthquake begins, like the ground starts rupturing and this giant sinkhole starts appear starts appearing in the battlefield, and all the battle all the, the men, the soldiers start getting sucked into this with this sinkhole of mud and terror. And everyone then is trying to claw their way out in this like boshian nightmare, the mud's on their faces and they're getting sucked in a bit like kind of quicksand and rubble and trees and men. And arms, and arms snaking arms, over yeah. arms. and Trying yeah. to get out. And the, you don't know what's a tree root and what's exactly. a person at this point. Yeah, And you're, they're getting sucked in down, down, and Robert's getting sucked in with everybody else. And as he's getting sucked in, it's getting tighter. He sees once again the faces of the men, some screaming, but he can't hear them because he's got everyone's got a mouth full of mud. Some are screaming, some are laughing, some have like have excess in their eyes. It's a real Boschian nightmare as they descend through this. Down into the down, pit. Down into this pit. Soldiers are still fighting, they're clawing onto each other, some are just hugging and embracing. It's just disgusting nightmare as they, they as they sink into the ground and then they fall out of this hellish sequence. They fall into a void, just absolute blackness, and they're tumbling like slow motion. The men, the cannons, some horses, trees, um, cattle, whatever, they're just kind of sinking, falling down through an endless void. I can almost picture a um, the part in Oh Brother Where Art Thou when the flood hits and mm. they're seeing all of the animals uh, underneath the water floating around, just really uh, out yes. of place and surreal. It's exactly, exactly like that. And then after what seems an eternity, they land softly or strangely in what's like a tar substance, this sticky, goopy kind of glow. They're not dashed on rocks or anything like that, on this sticky, gloopy substance. And as they kind of writhe around to try and get to the shore, men are pushing other men down, some are helping other men up, trying to get to the shore. Robert, they find like a rock formation, like a shore so they can they can get to. Uh, Robert Bloomfield manages to get to a shore and he gets on his back and he looks around at these kind of tar-covered monsters, I guess, writhing around, coming from this primordial abyss. And in that moment, he, he decides to help. So he goes back in to try and drag people out and try and help while others are doing that, while other men are pushing other men down, other men are still fighting. Still fighting. Horses yeah. are trampling on other men trying to get out. It's just, it's chaos. But are things still and, dropping from the yes, sort of sky like, as well, like cannons yeah, exactly. or... And it, but yeah. it's all gloopy and... and strange, and strange and soft yeah. there, yeah. So then Robert Bloomfield um, gets some men out and then the last of the battle kind of crashes down and... Those that are survivors scattered around on different rock clusters, I guess. Yeah. And they are kind of in a cave. It's kind of glistening, but it's so vast. And they can see other men, like, in the distance on other rocks. There's no way of getting to them. So they're on these isolated pods on this tar kind of thing. And so some of the soldiers that he's with, they they sit down because they believe they're in hell. And they sit down, they start praying and, penitent, and being penitent. Robert, um, at this point, he's got a bit of a survivalist instinct, kicks in. So he's like, well, this praying's not going to really fucking help anything right now. Um, we need to get out of here. So he's looking around the cave and he, he finds the cave wall and it's soft and it's a bit kind of, it's not rock, but it's not like mud. Does it feel like lichen or something like that? Yeah, it's just got this kind of spring. Sponge. Spongy spring. Yeah. And he's, he's touching and he finds like a crevice and he can put his fingers just in, in the crevice and they can go in a little bit. Oh. He can feel like air on the other side, like it's it's something. So he, he kind of pulls it apart and makes an opening and he can see into another room, into another kind of atrium. So he, he pulls it open and some men follow him 
And then as they get through, they turn around for the other men who are still praying and the door or the, the opening that is closed is just yeah. kind of like seals itself like a, a sphincter. sphincter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then from this sealed wall, they find this cave system. And through that, you have a sequence of kind of trials and tribulations as they're trying to figure their way out. So like potholing and going down further oh, to, to go goodness. up and just yeah, all this. Through water through, or slime yeah. or whatever. to Exactly. And there, some are praying, some are arguing, some are being resourceful. One guy falls down and he, he breaks his leg. He gets it crushed between some rocks, so they have to splint him up and carry them with him. So they keep on for the rest of what they think is the day. And they see, they soon come to this atrium, this this cave, I guess. And they, they slump down and some of the men start feeling around in the walls. This feels a lot more like rock. And one of the guys with this torch looks up at this face, this rock formation, which looks like a, a face and he sees something in him, sees it, and he says, this is the face of God. God is down here. God is with us. And so he gets on his knees and he starts praying. At this altar. Is that a terrifying revelation? Or like, you know, is he terrified by that or comforted? Like, what's that doing to us? It's yeah. both kind of exaltation that we're going to be okay. God is down with us. But it's also a kind of a terror inside that this is actually God. And yeah. what if a human came face to face with God, the maker? And that's why he kind of feels all of these things in this hell that he's in. So he falls to his knees and he starts kind of worshipping this God. And a few of the other men start worshipping this God. And then that night they decide to stay there that night because, you know, it's safe and it's kind of locked off. And the men, they, they pray. They build a little fire with the wood that they've carried with them and they go to sleep. And then in the middle of the night, Bloomfield is woken up by like the strange guttural sounds, this kind of moaning, kind of a crunchy, kind of uneasy sound. And he wakes up and he, he sees, he rolls over and he sees by the face of God, the men have got the injured man and they've sacrificed him there, they've, they've killed him. And he, well, they, they've put him there, they sacrificed him, but he's still kind of alive. But while he's that, they're just eating him. And so they're like pulling out his insides and they're offering themselves up this kind of horror Bosh. this boshy and this like <laughs> yeah. disgusting display of madness and uh, bluefield tries to pull the men off off this guy but they the men are just completely they've got this look in their eyes that maybe it's not even a human look in their eyes they're just absolutely lost to the madness and he realizes that these guys are these guys are crazy we can't help them we've got to get away so he rouses the other guys and, he, and they they flee, they escape. Maybe there's a chase scene as they're climbing up the cave. To yeah, going and down and out and sort of yeah. diving through some of these underwater tunnels to escape and exactly. like their hands grabbing at the ankles, exactly. that kind as of they, stuff. As they yeah, pursue absolutely. after them for their meals or for their their offerings, their, their bodily ablations to this thing. Yeah, each one of them is a ticket to God to buy the men who yes. sacrifice them at safety and mm. passage. Yeah, And then, so in order to finally free themselves of the, the cannibals the cannibal men, they find this very, very narrow kind of, this very, very narrow passageway. It's like um, a press, so maybe like six or seven inches high and quite long and flat. So that's the only way through. They've got to kind of crawl on, on their, their stomachs through this this thing. Yep. Very, very, yep. very kind of... That's horrific, yeah. Yeah, and they get to the other side and there's cracks start appearing in, in the walls and they can hear this godly this unearthly groaning and moaning and some guys are still in the in the press in in this kind of stone passage and so they're pulling guys out and there's still a couple of guys that are in there and that they're pulling them out and the the 
a look comes across these guys who are still in there, this kind of wild-eyed, ex- almost ecstasy, this happiness. And they're trying to pull, but they can't get them out. And and so the guys who are holding on to be pulled out, they kind of push the, the rescuers away. They, yeah. they don't want Yeah, and tuck to their hands out. away so they can't yeah, be grabbed. Well, yeah. well, what they do is instead of tucking their hands away, their arms are, are free up until like their mid-arm. And as the press comes down, they put their hands in a penitent prey in a prayer moment, and they put their hands up as if they're being penitent on their on their bellies to God and praying. Yeah. And yeah. then the rock crushes them horribly, obviously. Uh, the hands are perfectly there, um, <laughs> like squished completely, and the rock is completely sealed uh, by by the arms. And then there's just there's that. <laughs> And the thump, 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 thump of like a bunch of limbs hitting the, the the horrible mossy ground, man. We can have that, although that sound effect was exactly someone just eating a ice cream at the end of EastEnders. <laughs> Peggy, <laughs> that's <laughs> my cornetto. Right, so there's only a few soldiers. Like these are there's only a few soldiers left now with Bloomfield. So we got like five guys left yeah, uh, out of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in this kind of, they're in the absolute belly of the beast, I guess. And they just turn on Bloomfield because he's kind of been leading them with his logic and his ideas. He's been leading them away. So they kind of turn on him for being ungodly and getting them in this mess in the first place. So they just start attacking him and beating him in this big kind of fight in this cave, very brutal with with rocks, like once again, smashed on like knees and heads. And it's just a real horrible, burly... um, fist fight and as um bloomfield is starting to get beaten down he starts gets more and agitated and he gets more kind of exultant and he starts screaming to god said god save me i believe in you i repent i repent as he's smashing these people up like he's crushing them and he's just kind of and he's screaming god he's screaming scripture they didn't even know that he had in him and all this stuff is coming out as he as he's battering these guys and then um, a pinprick of light above their head kind of or a shaft of light opens up and comes down on them and they look up and they see this light and they obviously they believe that because he's repenting he's screaming all this God's scripture God has come to rescue them all so now they start climbing up on each other trying to get to this light this hole and as they scramble up the rock they get more and more crazy and, and more and more um, selfish to each other, like they're pushing each other down. Even um, Bloomfield, lost to this um, exalted madness, like treads on a guy's face to get a better purchase and like crushes his his skull against some rocks. He's clawing and he gets to the top of the, the cave with this hole and he's just covered in blood and viscera and he, he gets more from the bodies that are around him and he kind of smears it all over him so that he lubricates himself to go through the small hole like one arm first kind of thing yeah 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 and he climbs through the, the roof of this cave um into this this other cave into this atrium and he's the only one he climbs through and this atrium is kind of almost made of flesh and viscera it's bloody and pulsing and it seems alive. And he stands in the, in the middle of this cave in awe and majesty, believing that he is, in fact, in the heart of God, right in the centre. And then from the walls, he sees a man approach 
and the man kind of pushes through the skin of the wall, but taking the wall with him, so he's never fully revealed. It's just the the um, the body of a man. A suggestion of a man. A suggestion of a movement that's coming towards Bloomfield. And there's no language spoken between them as they come face to face. It's just this look of understanding and terror and ecstasy in Bloomfield, this exaltation. Bloomfield looks and goes to touch it, and he touches his face, and they touch each other's face, and they kind of caress each other. And the the thing in the wall, the thing in the, the flesh wall, I guess, um, it kind of starts to glow and change, and it becomes slightly opaque. And through the body and the, the shape, Bloomfield starts to see fields of England behind him, like beautiful meadows. And, and just silhouetted in the shape of this Yeah, just creature. silhouetted in and yep. kind of blurry, but he can see it. He can see mm-hmm. home. He can see everything. And he puts his hands on the, on the wall of the creature and he opens up the belly of this creature, of this thing, to get to England and he opens it wide and he starts crawling through it again. And then we cut to the outside world and Evil Dead style, a hand comes up from the, <laughs> through the battlefield and uh, Broomfield crawls his way out in mud and covered in blood and everything and ecstasy and all this horror that he's gone through. He's, kind of, he's out in England and he gets to his feet and he's walking over the remnants of the battlefield and it's the dead and the dying and he's walking and walking and as he walks, they become less and less and the, the meadow starts to come back to what it, open what up. it was, open um, up a bit. Yeah. And there's a few less bodies, a few less um, dead horses, and there's flowers, and there's some trees, and it's all very beautiful as he starts to make his way back home. And as if he's walking in the Garden of Eden now. And then he comes to his house, and he opens the door, and he walks inside, and he sees his wife. And then the next day, he leaves the house, and he goes to the priest to fulfill his promise. He confesses to the priest. He says, this is what happened. This is what I went through. I murdered people, Father, not, and not only in the forgivable sin of battle. I murdered people for survival. I witnessed men eating other men. You know, I, I went through hell and I survived. And I believe in God now. And God is my, my saviour. And the priest is very happy. He says that God is everywhere. God is good. God is in me, for I am God. And the priest looks a bit confused and Broomfield stands up and he opens his chest and he sees this black hole starts to appear in this in this chest cavity. And the priest, in shock and awe at seeing this, this hole, this cave open up inside of him, starts to crawl inside the body of Broomfield. And then he closes his chest in wonderment and then walks out into the field and off towards the town. Oh. Credits. <laughs> <laughs> Holy moly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is my pitch for Broomfield's Cave. Wowzers. Trousers, man. That is an absolute uh, nightmarish adventure that you've just taken us on there, mm. man. Crikey boikey. That, that, uh, that went swerved left and down. Yeah. And stayed there. I appreciate that a lot, man. Crikey. Thank you. How, I've, <laughs> I've never written horror before. I've never even attempted to write horror. So I really wanted to do something or go somewhere that I'd never done before. Yeah, well, so. I'm getting like um, 
I'm getting really nice hits of the terror mm-hmm. um, in yes. the desperation um, of the men to survive at all costs. Um, that tightly bound group of men, also mm-hmm. military men that must survive against an, an unknown, whatever that unknown may be, man, which I, I absolutely love and gives a real good chance for a great ensemble cast kind of a thing to yes. come together to make yeah. that happen, man. My touchstones for this were things like The Descent, obviously. Um, 100%. Yeah, I've got uh, Neil Marshall scrawled down on my page here, <laughs> nice. man, absolutely. Um and uh, the thing, obviously, um, with that kind of unknown terror and these people trying to figure it out and being so isolated. I don't actually, ha- I don't have a casting for Broomfield. I left him completely open. And if we did it earlier, a younger Colin Farrell would be really good. Yeah. Um, I'd like some- someone to capture the absolute terror and the absolute kind of panic and the crying and the screaming of seeing all this stuff going wrong around them and then the, the switch into this dead-eyed survivalist and then into this um, zealot or this kind of walking Satan or this walking demon that he becomes at the end or whatever you want to call him. I think your Farrell would be amazing. For that. Killian Murphy, maybe, he could Killian probably Murphy do because he's, be he's got that ability to switch to uh, psych, psych, you know, a psychopathic uh, quite quickly. If he could do... An English accent, which I'm sure he can because he's a professional actor and who can't do that? Paul Dano would be an interesting choice. Oh. He's got that look. He can do... Um, <laughs> he can do bewilderedness and he can do... He can, and, he can do religious uh, ecstasy, mm, as we've seen as, in There Will Be Bloods. Um, absolutely. Yeah, he would be... He Where he would give a, a, a billion percent and we would hope that his billion percent matched what we wanted because yes. I think that's how he works, kind of a I'd thing, like, man. Um, Broomfield also not to be some kind of action hero, but he's really good at fighting and, and battle. He's just completely no, he's got to be a, yeah. just a normal. Yeah. So when you see him picking up a rock and and hitting someone over the head with a rock and then not stopping, you want to see that transformation that it isn't some Jason Statham style action hero. This is just a meek, mild, lost soul that's just completely forsaken themselves. Uh, Barry Keoghan? Also very good. He's always a bit off-settling, isn't he? Uh, he? And he's got a wonderful innocence about him as well. Yes. He's got a very youthful face. I think that could play quite well for that, the lost terror at the start. And I think he could also do quite chilling yeah. if he wanted to. Oh, that would be good. In which case, if we have him, then we could have a Dunkirk reunion and have Mark Rylance as the priest. Oh, Oh, dude, I couldn't think of the priest. That is perfect. Rylance is born to play priests <laughs> and like dudes in robes walking around yeah. cold corridors, man. A hundred percent. He would be fantastic. So yeah, um, director wise, um I have one, two, three, four. No, one, two, yeah, four director's choices. Okay. Uh, something that has has brought to mind while you while you were pitching at me was the um the movie Apostle. The uh, oh, Dan uh, Gareth, Stevens, uh, Gareth, Gareth Ed- Evans. Evans. Gareth um, Evans. I think yeah. he has he has quite a good just from Apostle. He has quite a good um, feel for unsettling horror. I think there were some issues with it. It yes. went too long, all that kind of malarkey. But I think he really managed yeah, to capture really, that yeah. old timey. Something's really up. Lots of people have very strange beliefs, and we are witnessing those beliefs writ real in front yeah. of us i think he did a very good That's job of that really man. Good show. Okay. neil marshall obviously uh, he'll, he'll bring the schlock horror to it uh, 
But maybe we need some of that because there's some powerfully unsettling, surreal images in this that we mm. need for the moments where the men are working together and we've established that camaraderie before Sean they like... Sean Pertwee is going to be the priest, isn't he? Please, oh, please. <laughs> Do you believe in God? <laughs> I'm like, please I let him God in a Kazi. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually just added another couple. So I've got one, two, three, four, five, six. So we can put it out to tender and they can pitch. They'll be calling to us by the end of this, mate, so it's fine. Um, My picks for director, in order of them being written down, rather than favourites, Ari Aster. Oh. He would do the visuals very, very well and the horror. And the horror, yeah, everything. Yeah. yeah. The formulas would be really good for something so tremendously unsettling. Uh, The next one, Jonathan Glazer did... Under the skin, absolutely, yeah. He so would. I think with the, um, the black when they're falling, yeah, when they're falling through the void and all these strange, he would do. I think he would balance really well the realistic stuff on the surface, like the battle and everything like that, would be quite. But when it gets into the Boschian underworld, it would become completely surreal and strange, and not necessarily as icky as something that David Cronenberg might do, but something much more ethereal, I guess, and unsettling and ethereal to get across the fact that when they're seeing these things or these witnessing these things, they they don't know if they're terrified or if they're in love or if they're turned on or if they're repulsed. They've got all of these raw, and I think with his visuals, he could probably he could probably do that. Absolutely, yeah. I've got Peter Strickland, who did Barbarian Sound Studio. Sound Studio. Yeah, he, again, he would do all of the uh, beneath ground mm. surrealism perfectly, and the sound design would be <sighs> off the hook as well, so man. Obviously, I've got Ben Wheatley. I, I, yeah, I've literally just scrolled him <laughs> down. Yeah, fantastic. This is the field of England, and we might get Michael Smiley. So, oh, oh, we need him. He needs to be in the uh, in the yes. in the underground team without yes. that. Yep, he's another one there. I've got uh, Prino Bailey Bond. She directed uh, Sensor, which came out last. That year. That was yeah, 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 fantastic really that movie. Film. Yeah, it's a very stylish film, and again, lots of atmosphere, um, yes, oppressive scariness about mm-hmm. it. Yep. And my last pick is um, Panos Cosmatos. Oh, say no more. Yeah, yeah say I would. No more. Because you'd have all that, but then you'd have this really kick-ass synth wave score. <laughs> so yeah, 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 yeah. With muskets, synth wave yeah. and muskets, man. Brilliant. That is a combination we haven't had yet. But yeah. and maybe uh, an Eggers because he'd do the oh, yeah. period detail, detail so very well for all of the battles and stuff. Yes, he would. Yes, and he would. Uh, I think that the Northman had some really nice, pretty wild imagery going on in yeah, there as yeah. well. Yeah, that's true. I need to get that another rewatch. Um, yeah, so that is my pitch for. Broomfield's Cave. The other thing I was kicking around, um, it was a completely different. I was going to use cave as cave, French for cellar. So it would have been a um, Lasse Hallstrom, Mm -hmm. kind of thing about uh, an English soldier who gets abandoned by or left behind by his, um, his platoon or his squad in the Second World War and stays behind and helps, um, the remnants of the, the French resistance or something in this small town defend the only bit that's left of this very small town, which the is the chocolate the, shop. The chocolate shop, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is their beautiful wine cellar or the, this wine shop. And that's his, it's, yeah, he defends it to the end and it's Broomfield's cave rather than. Nice, nice. And uh, they open the bottle at the end as the war is announced over. And yeah, we've been yeah, saving exactly. this for just a moment, man. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is my pitch for 
Greenfield's Cave. I like that a lot, man. I really enjoyed you pitching in that um, scary, surreal, uh, nightmarish world, man, for the mm. uh, for the entirety. That was good. From the minute the ground opened up and swallowed them, I I very much enjoyed that ride, man. Thank you very much. If one can enjoy uh, men treading on each other's faces and eviscerating them and feeding them to godheads, uh, which, yes, I can, because <laughs> I did. I I <laughs> yeah, sounds great. I proved my own point. <laughs> Um, right, so what have we got next? We are going to move on to The Rain King. Uh, okay, so The Rain King, uh, first, um, because I know it is a Counting Crows song, I thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity for the uh, biopic of the Counting Crows that the world has been uh, screaming for for the last, uh, since 1993. But I didn't, I resisted, because their story is not yet told, Graham. <laughs> no, no, some might say it's not yet begun, but they would be cruel people. I've strayed away from that, and I've decided instead to take us to uh, the post-apocalypse. Are you coming with me, Graham? Are you coming yes. with me to the? I have uh, my leather chaps and my studded. Excellent, and some like some spikes through the old nipples, and, yes. and your game and good to go, man. Fantastic. Good to go. So the land is burned, the skies are dry, pockets of humanity live mostly underground, drinking dry the last of the world's water, living on the old tech mixed in with new desperation, and they can the things that they can scavenge from the surface when the day's heat is diminished. So uh, the world is wrecked. And so, sorry, sad Luke's back because he's he's already blown up the world. <laughs> we've, we've only been here for a paragraph and it's happened. We knew that this wow. day would come. So uh, we open on shots of sand, twisted gnarled trees, cacti, because where there's sand, I guess, uh, wells of dust, skeletons, both human and animal, scraps of cloth hanging off of fences. We traverse this trans, this landscape to uh, to begin with uh, and we get the very, very uh, significant feeling we are in a post-apocalypse thanks to the uh, iconography littering the streets as the camera pans down and down to a uh, large cast iron portal that is being slowly opened as the raging sun slowly gives way to shadow about halfway across it. It slowly slides past me. Someone uh, see someone's gloved hand come out into the sunshine, and they're all holding this old beaten up big button bit of tech that you might find in a James Cameron movie or something like that. And it's a temperature gauge, and it's clearly flashing in the red danger. The hand goes back inside, and with it, we follow, and we follow David. Um, as he walks into his underground home, we're introduced to David, uh, his mother, his sister. Um, they're some of the few survivors of the Scorch. Uh, their hobbitesque underground home is dusty. It's full of sputtering, uh, end of its life technology. We can see him as he goes around checking everything, doing his daily routine. We can see him cranking levers, working dynamo motors to make some uh, lights come on above him to sort of uh, lead him further, deeper into the underground uh, home he lives in. Um, we see him harvesting some mushrooms, a few limp vegetables from under a roughshod hydroponic setup. He finally goes down to uh, where they have built a well like as deep as they can get basically in the homestead and he pulls up the bucket and it comes up barely half full like they're running out as is everyone um so we are introduced to the life of david and his family got rose's younger sister and Belle's mother they're a tight fierce unit brought together by uh, all the stronger by the uh, loss of their father uh, we see them going on some night hunts when finally the world has cooled enough for them to go above uh, without the fear of the sun baking them half to death and dehydrating them uh, in a in a heartbeat kind of a thing. Uh, they hunt what they can, large, thick-skinned rodents, sort of bug-like creatures that scutter about uh, on the cool night uh, desert floor. There's not much else. Um, during 
sort of the uh, the interactions we come to know that David's father left years ago in search of the Rain King, a man who was said to be able to control the scorched barren skies to bring forth water from the heat of the sun, a man who may hold the power to slake the great thirst that the world is suffering from. So his father promised to send word back once he had found this man. He knew that the supply of water they had below was... It was beautiful, it was such a fine, but it was limited. It was only going to last so long. He knew he had to go into Thumbdar Hills to fetch the gold, <laughs> that kind of a thing, you know. It's the, it's the proper Western. I'll be back, I'll send word, I'll send a rider back, yeah, and you'll sure. come and we'll live the good life out there, man, with all the uh, resources we may need. Mm. So uh, his father's nook in the homestead is still, uh, and yes, he has a nook, uh, as we <laughs> all aspire to have at some point in our we lives. Do. We do. Can I just interrupt, sorry, um, how old is David? Well, David's in his 20s now. He's like sort of 20s to maybe 30 kind of a thing, man. Um, sort of he's he's, he's uh, relatively young, although probably not in a post-apocalyptic world, I guess. He, one could argue he might be quite old, depending on the survival rates. The father's nook in the homestead is still intact. There's a single radio that he left. Um, it's a companion to the one he took with him that he used to contact his family for as long as he could before he fell out of range to let them know that he was safe and as far as they know yes he was safe until he wasn't until he was silent uh david and his sister they pour over his father's nook and all of the little scraps and maps and 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 etchings and goodness knows what else that he has collected over his years as he's obsessed with trying to find this ranking that he went searching for um they come to the decision as a family that the low supply of water that they had is they've got a face that it is going very, very quickly. There's not much left. If they're going to make a move uh, to somewhere that will offer them a better chance, they're going to have to pack up as much of the water as they can from the diminished well, and they're going to have to start to move on somewhere else. And the best they've got is the maps that their father left them. Uh, they are guaranteed settlements that he had plotted along the route that he knew he could get to within about a night's uh, journeying to save mm-hmm. putting up with the uh, fierce, fierce sons. And he knew that they were relatively speaking or relative to the outside world, at least they were safe places. And so they decided to leave. Um they pack up the few things that they need, which is mainly water. And we slip into a survival film now. We've done like the introduction to everyone. Mm-hmm. We've established their place in the world and we've established what the world is doing. And now we have to watch David Rose and Bell load up their most necessary goods and start their journey to the nearest settlement by night. Uh, and immediately that is not an easy prospect because it's a very, very long walk and the nights are not very, very, very long at all. Um, they're basically racing against the sun whenever they try to uh, start on one of these journeys. They've got the t- temperature sen- sensors that we saw waved out of the manhole at the start. So we've got a nice like tension builder as these things start to rack up and up mm. and up. And we know that they are nowhere near any kind of shelter. And you can see the threatening sun building up behind them. And it's this giant angry God speaking of earlier, you know, it's 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 a very terrifying prospect to be stuck in. And so we we follow them as they are scrabbling for the tiny bits of water they can gather during their night walks, uh, which are basically nothing because the world is completely uh, uh, desiccated. Um, they make it to a first camp. Uh, one there, the mainly hostile residents continue to sow the seeds of the father's story and even one of the old women goes so far as to say to David, you look a lot like him, like she, she's seen his father pass through. And that gives David quite a lot of hope, actually. Uh, and he starts to say, well, look, can you tell me any more about this 
the ranking and they're like, look, mate, we've heard stories. You're, 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 you're saying the same thing your dad did. Like, we can give you no more than we gave him, which is... Is the ranking something that only the dad has made up or is it a commonly held myth amongst people in settlements? Well, as they start to travel, there is, you know, this first settlement, they're like, look, yeah, you're the... We know you're the ranking guy's kid or whatever. He's come mm. through here. That's where we heard it from is his bloody whatever he was talking about. Okay. But then as they journey forward, they start to get more and more signs that there are people who actually do believe that there is a man out there that can control the skies and can create water from nothing. Okay. It's not and just so, the mad ramblings of the father. Yeah, the father, like, he was very organised. We see that by the plans, the preparations that he's made yeah. that's in his nook. You know, he was... Uh, he took a very hard decision to go and try and, you know, get water where there was none uh, for his family. You know, it was like a last ditch thing that he did. So he made sure that as much as he could, he researched and planned for the entire journey. And he's, it seems to be a decision made by a sensible person, not a raving lunatic. Um, and so, uh, in that first settlement, um, we're sort of going to play these, these camps and settlements a bit like the pub scenes in wake and fright. They're mm. kind of wild, um, Bawdy, I would say, um, kind of like how Benny Hill used to scare me because it just felt so... <laughs> it was all the fast walking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, you can't trust the man that moves that quickly. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Benny, yeah, that's such it's, a strange reference. It's, <laughs> Benny Hill, it was scary because it was so like... It was so big and full and like in my face as a child. It was I just okay. found it truly unsettling. Um, and there were some sort of some like of the extreme close-ups and the uh, sweaty wild faces in Wake and Fright that yes. sort of reminded me of that sort of feeling that I had <laughs> as a child. Okay. <laughs> so uh, if ever I scream, we need to Benny Hill it. That means we've got to make him much more scary, man. That's my code. <laughs> okay. um, and so that's that's how we're playing these these camps. They're not safe places to be they're just desperate little scrappy we don't need more people coming here we don't have any resources anyway and if we got a well mm -hmm. you're not going to share from it kind of a thing and if you mm -hmm. got water we're probably going to try and take it we're, we're trying to survive and that is like the the only thing we're attempting to do so they have a lot of issues within the first couple of camps there's a lot of threats um they find people trying to take their water um rose has to fight back she beats away the people that are trying to get their water. She wakes up David. She wakes up uh, Mother Belle. She says, we've got to get out of here. We can't stay here anymore. It's nearly dark. It's as close as we're going to have to risk it. And they run out into the mm. sunshine um, and with, with little direction other than to get away from the camp and uh, the threats within. Um, unfortunately, because they left in the middle of the day, there is hardly any shade. They take some, uh, some solace underneath a cracked gnarled tree when there's just enough shade just about to keep them alive for who knows they're going to find out i suppose and in the distance they see what looks like sort of a great shimmering stingray coming towards them uh which they have no frame of reference for they mm. it's a it's a hallucination it's a mirage it's probably not happening but happen it is and it comes closer and closer and uh, this is where we meet scriver who has invented this large uh sort of completely reflective uh, covering, which is also mobile that he can use to traverse the land. Um, and it kind of looks like a silverfish or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and it's kind of inspired by the uh, sort of those, uh, the beach uh, art sculptures by Theo Jansen. Oh, wow. Yeah, they are so terrifying. Which are 
really weird, really scary, and really beautiful and flowing, yes. and they undulate like bugs, and like that—that mm, that is what so they see good. coming towards them. And okay, just we'll put a li- we'll put a link in the show notes so yeah, people can read yeah. That uh, and underneath its great silver shiny wings that are uh, batting back the rays of the sun, we've got some bladders for water and stuff like this. This scriver gentleman is clearly uh, he's 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 a uh, uh, kind of like the uh, the mad whirlybird pilot in Mad Max. It's yes, that kind yeah, of a yeah. wild energy about him, man. He he's uh, he's an inventor. He's he's naturally able to look at things and know how they work and put them all back together. That kind of stuff. So he thankfully comes along at the right time terrifies him at first because he arrives in this great shimmery undulating thing um but he welcomes them underneath he gives them water and he says you got to come back to my settlement where he's got the trust and respect of the inhabitants there due to his skills at solving problems he's a really really necessary part of their their small tribe um the place is relatively thriving and it is welcoming and david says what like are you the rain king man like is that is that you <laughs> and like scriber just laughs and he says no mate and that's not the first time i've been called that but no that isn't me i've i've heard of that and there is someone else you should talk to if you're interested in finding out more and there was a sort of an old mad blind dude who wandered into camp say 10 months ago that is raving on his own but he mentions him a hell of a lot and if you want Mm -hmm. to you're welcome to go and talk to him man so he goes off and he talks to this this guy combined with the father's maps um, that they have kept from their father's uh, nook, the notes that he took, um, Scriver combined with, sorry, uh, combined with the uh, the ravings of the old man, things actually start to make more sense, not less sense, uh, the more they listen to him and the more that they hear him say about the man who can make the rain in the east. And he's next to a, uh, he's next to the Dead Sea or the dried up sea, and he can make rain from nothing out east. He can make rain from the sun. And that's that's all they've got. And they're like, well, look, we are going to run out of water here and wherever we stop because we have not got an endless supply and we can't tap into any f- underground because that's running out as well. So we've got to take the step to... We've got, we've got to go forth and try and find this guy and Scriver. Are you going to come? I know that it will be it will deplete the skills of your tribe for now, but it might give you the things you need forever moving forward. So, mm. yep, they go along as well, um, and they set out east. Uh, during which David has been uh, constantly turning on his father's radio. During stages of this, we see at the camps he'll always find a high place to go up and try and find some kind of proof of life. Further out they go east, the more they start to get every now and again a little blink of this and a blink of that so they keep going and going Mm -hmm. and then uh the underneath this wonderful contraption of scribers um there's a really really bad storm that hits them this massive electrical storm that they can see well out in the distance they can feel the repercussions of and after um the storm blows itself out or finishes with this cacophonous sort of show of lightning and and booms of thunder uh, they see that there is actually a building sort of around or underneath that, this giant construction that almost looks like a, a flower with this building in the centre and sort of these great um, sheets billowing out from this massive tower in the centre like petals. Mm. Uh, and in the shadow of these buildings, when they are investigating, they're met by uh, some armed men and led by an older, completely blind man, uh, much like the one from Scriver's camp. Uh, mm-hmm. Only this one is sane and cool and calm and authoritative. And he takes them uh, before their leader, Garlo, the man in charge, uh, 
and there's water. There's quite a lot of water. They go to uh, Garlo, the man in charge. There's, they say again. I'm asking everyone. I come in every town I walk into. I'm asking this: Are you the rain king? And he laughs in their face and he says, "No, I can't make rain, but I've got a nose for sniffing out water." And like that contraption of yours out there reeks of it. Nice and full, isn't it, man? And he takes a bit of a shine to Scriver and the uh, and the contraption. Um, and we discover. Uh, as they are invited in and garlic say yeah you're welcome to stay we got we got enough we've got enough uh and they see that they're the uh all of the sort of like there's a lot of like these blind dudes there Mm. like these robed blind guys who seem to follow garlo with complete zeal um and only they and he can go into this room uh and so they are here, they are stuck with this Wizard of Oz type sort of mythical dude that is denying that he is the mythical dude that they think he is. But they know that there's a lot of water in this compound um, and they know that there is something going on um, in the uh, inner sanctums of this place. Uh, something potentially that is causing the water. Um, and so we then uh, find out by whatever means uh, that Garlo... Um, has the technology to create rain from nothing because he can actually access um, this great sort of terraforming uh, facility that he he and his men have ended up in. He can access and use that to create rain as and when he wants to. And he could use it to create uh, rain across everywhere, but then he would lose all of his power and his monopoly. So it's a very closely guarded secret. Um, and he, um, he uses the blind men um, to run the machinery and they each know exactly the buttons that they individually mm-hmm. have to press to make this work for the periods that he wants them to make it work. And that is the only way you can sort of get into that inner sanctum. You are given the knowledge, you're blinded and you are mm-hmm. to prove you blind yourself by staring at the sun, forgive me, to prove your fealty to him forever. Nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you are then in control of maintaining this uh, never ending cycle of rain that right. he uh, refills this giant pool in the center of the facility with and that is what his men have been bathing in and that's what his men have been using and he has got an endless supply uh, and he is in fact the rain king but um david rose and uh uh, and bell as well as uh scriver um have to infiltrate this uh, and then they have to share the uh the rain with the rest of the uh the world i suppose man (laughs) as they actually finally do set off this terraforming and i think scriver will uh, fall fall underneath the uh, the uh, the thrall of Garlo, mm-hmm. and Garlo is also thinking, well, if I can get another smart, I haven't got, mm. I, you know, I haven't got a monopoly on smart dudes out in the middle of the wasteland, and that is a resource almost as valuable as water is someone that can understand what I'm doing here and what I'm trying to do. I think David and Rose will be going on like little night missions, uh, much mm-hmm. like they used to do when they scavenged uh, for themselves back at the homestead they originated from. So they will slowly discover um, discover the truth behind Garlo's blind henchman, um, his abilities and the facility that he uses mm-hmm. as his home and the abilities of that facility. And at the end, they will um, uh, gather together all of the blind who will each one of them will tell them the stage that they need to uh, to do to make the machine work, right. and then 
Scriver will be there to orchestrate the full rollout of the machine itself. So instead of being an enclosed kind of a flower petal, like a tulip, mm. um, where it only fires its technology down into this one little basin, they open this up, uh, these great solar paneled uh, sort of uh, leaves, if you will, of mm. the facility at the end. And from it, uh, they they bring forth the rain uh, from the power of the sun, nice. as, 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 as the rain king should have done. All right, what happens to Gullif? What's his comeuppance? Does he have a comeuppance? I mean, I, I can, if, if, if this is the, uh, like a Paul Verhoeven 80s movie, I can see Garlo hanging off the top of the, uh, <laughs> of the facilities, like leaf. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. And then he's dropped into the water below and he drowns in water or something like that. Gotcha. What, what happened to the dad? Well, we will, thank you uh, for reminding me about another plot point that I forgot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, he will, he, he's uh, one of the blind monks. He's we an are revealed to. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he's an acolyte at the end um, who is sort of slowly, slightly brought out of his um, fervour by the yeah, voice of his son that he recognises. Um, so uh, how did the old blind dude get where he was? The mad blind dude. Yes, he he will have escaped uh, from, because what they are doing, um, Galo is actually quite happy about the um, the legend of the Rain King because it brings people to him and he can take their resources whenever they come through right. in a sort of uh, Hills Have Eyes-esque sort of a way. Mm. That should happen to Garlo at the end, though, shouldn't it? For come up and get blinded. Yeah, and blind I was kind of thinking, there. like, yes, yeah, on blind as well, because he uh, maybe the reflective solar panels that yes. are finally opening, like he stares upon them, uh, and that. Yeah. Ah, sure. yeah. It's you not almost... the sun, it's the actual machine that he creates, blinds him. And... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I think that's what happens to him. That's a cracking shout, man. But he'll never be able to see it if he's blind. That's cruel. And we should sew his mouth mm. up too. He won't be able to drink. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's, that's like a bad thing. And we give him a rain max so he can't feel the water with his skin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just laminate him. So We're going to laminate Garlow. <laughs> Yeah, so I think he will be blinded by the machine. I like that idea, man. Cool. I really like it. It had some weird imagery in it, some kind of um, some Wizard of Oz kind of yeah. imagery, this this strange facility in the middle of this wasteland, even though that's not the Wizard of Oz. It could be very dreamlike. And I think road movie, because it is effectively a road movie, or like a Heart of Darkness kind of journey, brings the element out of an apocalypse now or more recently ad astro i guess like the further you go away or towards your going into the deep dark places the stranger more primal things you witness and then you move on you overcome so the different encampments each with their own distinct personalities and their, their distinct wants and needs maybe each one has a strange either connection or pull to if they have three like one to david one to um Bell and one to Rose, like not necessarily a reason why they should stay, but something just kind of appeals to them, like, uh, like like the Turkish delight in uh, in uh, Chronicles Narnia. of Narnia. Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I love um, I love Scriver's contraption. Or he's such a, it seems like a really compelling character. I was I really yeah, I like yeah, very Jules Verne kind of thing. You know, he is. Guy, he's yeah. full of pep, and he's really he's yeah. so he's such a positive because and he's positive because he's making actual change that he can mm. see everywhere that is actually helping people constantly, sort of every day, kind yeah. of a thing, and that I gives him validation for his positive. Kind of giddy and kind of almost childlike in his wonderment. Um, who have we got casting wise? Uh, I was thinking um, maybe Kalua for David. 
Oh, yeah. I think he's just he would he would so sell purpose. Mm-hmm. He is such he's got such purpose to him as like an actor as well as yeah. He, I, I just I, I absolutely think he could sell that um, that the narrow minded. I am not shifting from the project that I have set myself to do. I am not moving from it, and you're not going to move me. That's a great show. He's fantastic. He's got some presence and belief in him. You know, he, he can. But yeah, his. and he's so he's so capable and so able to um show that capability by doing nothing he was the first person i thought of um and yeah so i think that's that's for him for um scriver i was kind of thinking sam rockwell because he can do (laughs) he can do like raggedy beard um he can do like mad energy uh he can do sort of wild frenetic kind of a thing man for Garlo, I was thinking um, Willem Dafoe, I think, would be a really good, uh, like, Wizard of Ozian character mm-hmm. who is charming at first and able what to... What about Rose and Bell? I'm not sure, man. You're like, Viola Davis was a... Yeah, good shout. Like, just because she's fantastic and, again, can I could I can imagine her surviving the hell out of a post-apocalypse kind of a thing mm-hmm. just because, you know, she's she, she and, and, and Kalia have metal. Um, who was the woman in... The Watchmen TV series. Oh, that's a very good show. It's been a long time since I've seen that, man. Um, Regina King. Ah! Or Regina King. King. Yes. She would be fantastic as well, man. I was obviously like Angela Bassett, but I think she might be probably pitched a little too high, mm-hmm. potentially. Um, but uh, I'm trying to... Speaking of um, Viola Davis, then I would have Fusu Mida, who was in The Woman King. She was the... And they're very the very amazing strong. badass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was the best character in that for me, man. I thought she was amazing. She was cool. Doesn't didn't give a fuck about nothing. She was great. Yep. Yep. Nice. I had who did I have? Well, I don't know why. The first thing I typed, I think it was because I was thinking of post-apocalyptic world. So probably quite scrawly and ravaged and like <laughs> Now, those are quite negative words, so I do, apolo- I do apologise. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, scrawny and ravaged, I bring you... You, Dane DeHaan. <laughs> <laughs> he is well scrawny, and like his coal-ring eyes, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Sorry, Dane. Sorry, Sorry Dane. Um, <laughs> I, can, I can imagine him as a kind of, like, existing in a, in a world like that, but he, he has the kind of ferocity in his, in his voice. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, man. Yeah, and again, could play that uh, uh very driven he's got the good he's got a good face for intensity kind of a thing man. um i've also got uh andrew garfield oh he i can imagine him with a big scraggly beard and being oh mate and and he would bring a lot of kindness that you'd need in that world yes as well as the belief that kind of like he showed to a almost a terrifying level in Haxall ridge man when he was that deeply mm. religious uh, mm-hmm. the beatific smile kind of a thing he'd be able to translate that self-belief i think very well into and i love garfield man yeah yeah me too okay. he's fantastic yeah i'd have garfield um for scriver i've got bettany oh he would he uh, yeah channel his um a knight's tale that exactly that i, I would channel exactly his that. chaucer from a knight's tale yeah yeah that, yeah that glee that charm and that kind of and you're yeah, you're coming along I with me because i'm just so excited about this so you're coming too yeah, yes. yeah okay my other my pivot from bettany when you mentioned the um the gyrocopter pilot from mad max i was thinking who's a modern day equivalent of him i've <laughs> 
You and Bremner? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I could see him like. I don't know if he. I don't know if he has the, the leading man. But he doesn't need it. That's fine. And I guess, but I think he, he would have that zany, in a nice kind of, in the, in this horrific world that they're occupying. He still finds absolute wonder in engineering and the small things. Like I can imagine when they're going across with their big machine, whatever it's called, and him just stopping. And they're like, we got to go. We have, the sun is catching. I oh, don't worry about that. Have you seen this rock? <laughs> you know, this rock is... Or he picks up a wrinkle or something from yeah, exactly. 100 years ago or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. You believe like they used that. to drink this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like um, you and Bram hell of a lot man i think yeah. yeah i think like 100% because he is he is the perfect gyrocopter modern day gyrocopter <laughs> modern man like honestly <laughs> yeah yeah definitely upping the budget slightly to include this i've only got one actor for garlo okay and it's big and guns it pre- it's, it's it's pretty big guns i've got oscar isaac oh that would be amazing and he i would He's love so to see him he's so enigmatic and you can imagine bad. people yeah, it'd be great at being bad, but you can see people flocking around and maybe he just gives great sermons. He has that, um, yeah, the Oz, the great and powerful showmanship about him and this kind of, yeah, I can imagine it'd be pretty good. Who have you got for director? Well, weirdly, and the, it might, I don't know if he'd, I think he would be able to handle the scale because he's, uh, he's handled war movies previously, man, and he's also got mm-hmm. a very good fairy tale um, ability, or he's got a very good ability of bringing um, the fairy tale into the real world. So I might think about Joe Wright. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a good shout. Because that's interesting. I like uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of the imagery that he uses generally. But Hannah, I'm thinking of especially, which is like the yeah. beautiful little fairy tale, but it's not a beautiful little fairy tale. It's a horrible, sure. violent thriller um, wrapped <laughs> up in the trappings of a fairy tale. So I think he could bring some of that Wizard of Oz-like okay. energy to it, maybe. I've, very, I've only got, and it was it's such a cliched um, choice. I've only got Denny Villeneuve. So he'd be really good. However, I think he... He might not bring the fun that might be needed, for like for the scri- uh, the scriber character. And we, yeah, know. yeah, like we want some of that, and, and they're not they're not cold um, necessarily. Mm. But there's a certain detachment with his movies. I don't know, and not yeah. in a bad way. And that kind of enables me to view them in a different way, I suppose. Or yes, but there's some yeah. there's something um, that I want some of the. Obviously, we all do, but some of the George Miller. Just, I'm just having fun, and I've, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm taking joy in making this, and I want some of that joy to translate onto the screen as well. Yeah. I think uh, Joe Wright is a really good show. Actually. I think so, man, because he like Atonement was he can handle big, mm, of course, big budgets, big uh, battle scenes, and things like that. And I think he could bring the the fairy tale oddness to it all quite nicely. I really like it, The Rain King. That's pretty good. Did you have any other? Yes, I did actually. Yeah. Um, oh, did you? Uh, I originally, because I had two things that I thought, like obviously, uh, mm. well, after I discounted the Counting Crows biopic, which took a, obviously, a, <laughs> there was a lot of soul searching involved in that uh, conversation I had with myself, man. But once I'd nixed that, um, oh. it was pretty much, well, it's post apocalyptic. That's kind of where it is, mm. man. But then I was thinking, and I kind of would have liked to uh, follow this one as well. And I started writing it. I was like, no, you can just focus on one, for goodness sake. But yeah. uh, the ranking was going to be about a uh, gambler in Vegas who comes out of the joint, um, is now 
completely in the doldrums. He used to be known as the Rain King because everywhere he went, he made it rain. He made it rain. He's one yeah, of the sure. luckiest guys uh, like in town until he wasn't, until he was betrayed. He was put in prison over the debts he had and he has to come out and do good. And there's a big finale at like the uh, a grand poker tour or something like that where he comes in and he's like, it's not luck that got me here. It's because I'm good, man. Yeah. And he sweeps the table with a guy who had him sent down and it's all very amazing. Nice. Oh, that would be, that could be a really good knockabout fun it's a serious edge, but it could be have a lot of fun. Yeah, like Matchstick Man, I guess, would be where I'd pitch yeah, that yeah, in yeah. levels of like serious to fun to caper kind of a thing, man. Um, you definitely want Rockwell in that, wouldn't you? Yeah, God. I'd... Speaking of Matchstick yeah. Man. Yeah, 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 absolutely, man. Yeah. So, yeah, that that was where I went with that. Um, but then I was like, no, I'm going to start just, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with the Apocalypse Man. We'll go there. But that was, that was my only other thought for that. Nice. I'm very happy with that. I really liked it. I, th- I like the idea of them moving at night. I like the different settlements, the different encampments that they, they, they approach, and then the, the scaling up of their encounters. The way you see Scriver and his incredible machine, which is such a shimmering, The I think you said it was like a stingray. Yeah, stingray or silverfish. Shimmering sort of across. Like, yeah, undulating its shimmering way. Shimmering across the mirage. It's such a beautiful image. Wow, that was the Rain King. It was thank you for I listening. Really enjoyed that. Thank you for no, no, joining you in as well. Really, Crikey. I really enjoyed that. That's some really some of the most striking imagery that we've had on this podcast so far, which is a weird thing to say for a podcast. Striking. Well, imagery. no, but I'd like, I th- I like, conjured, I, I'd like to think that we can project the occasional uh, something onto someone's uh, mental cinema screen, man. I hope that's mm. we do that from time I to time. Pro- I usually project my anxieties onto every situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's nice to change gear a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I, I really like that. I think we've had a couple of really interesting films that are quite different from what we've had before, which I really liked. Yeah, well, I, I, I really enjoyed the. Uh, uh, in in a really good way, oppressive darkness of what mm. I uh, imagined as you were telling me yours, man. I appreciate that. Do you want to do some short pitches? Yeah, I've got a yeah, I've got a well short pitch for for for, for okay, just then uh, absolutely, <laughs> man. Certainly, certainly, let's do some shorties. So the short pitch for Broomfield's Cave. What do you got? Uh, Broomfield's Cave is like uh, the Blumhouse take on Needful Things. <sighs> So Broomfield's Cave is an old antiquity shop um, that, uh, right. that, and it's uh, we've got a uh, uh, anthology horror movie in which that mm-hmm. is the thing that ties everything together, and we get like four, three or four visitors to Broomfield's Cave who are granted right. the wishes that they uh, wish they'd never wished. I mean, that is exactly needful things, and also that episode of Rick and Morty. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> that's as far as I was like I just need for things yeah that's it and it's the Blumhouse version like they do the uh, you know they're doing the um, uh, the Megan is their uh, toy soldiers kind of a thing or whatever you know Mm. gotcha okay my pitch for the Rain King is it's kind of expansion and development of the cloud blasting music video by Kate Bush so it's an inventor and his young boy who are who want to control the weather or want to build this machine, the adventure and the boy are so focused on this mad, stupid contraption that no one says it's going to work. And, you know, you add in social services that are going to take the boy away because he's not going to school and he's getting ostracised by... Um, the inventing community or whatever it is, he's they go out at night and they're stealing things from cars to like like batteries and hubcaps yeah, yeah. or whatever. I mean, hubcaps <laughs> and and like frisbeeing hubcaps up into the clouds. Frizz, yeah, exactly to try and that's 
Mark one. <laughs> you got to start somewhere. On a hill yeah. Frick. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh yeah, and it's just it's basically the cloud busting music video by Kate Bush, but Ritz. Beautiful. That's an amazing shout. And Donald could still be in it as well. He could. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I, I will say I toyed with like cloud seeding and stuff. Right, so uh, we need to uh, just quickly give each other a uh, horse each, man, um, if you'll allow me to. Yeah, let's give each other some horses. So where are we going to go? Where chance are you going? I think we should go to... Uh, where haven't we been? I've got one. Go for it. I reckon we should go to Wolverhampton. I think Wolverhampton. I know Wolverhampton is a fine place with some lovely pubs with buns on the side that you can buy for cheap and eat with your beer. I love it. Let's go there. Really? Like sticky buns? Uh, no, no, like uh, crusty rolls. I should have said rolls, not buns. I misled you with the word bun. Uh, uh, but I like saying bun. Beautiful. So, yeah, let's go to Wolverhampton. I'm absolutely quids in. Let's go to Wolverhampton. All right. And by the time we get there, it'll be time for a late lunch, So because it's going to be the 3.20. Oh, that's, that's a very respectable time for us to rock up to Wolverhampton, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. 3.20, Wolverhampton. Um. This is what I don't know. Doesn't go. Yeah, the three twenty from Wolverhampton. All right. Uh, I will. Uh, if you wouldn't mind hitting me first, man, I'll have a look and I will uh, grab one for you as well, mate. Okie dokie. Let's have a look. Oh, there's some nice ones on here. Okay, I'm going to give you Harbour Vision. Harbour Vision. I like it. I can. I can sense a Marvel sequel uh, <laughs> involving Paul <laughs> Bettany uh, mentioned earlier. It's world's dead. World's deadliest catch. <laughs> Meets <laughs> meets the He's just like all he does every day is just go into the sea, pulls out all the fish, and gives us the fisherman. On, I on want the to see the white vision, whatever his name is. What the other he's got a name in um, fisherman? Like in, in, yeah, in a perfect <laughs> storm style. So anyway, look, I'm spoiling yeah. next week's uh, already, man. Okay, thank you. I appreciate yes. Harbour Vision, marvelous. Uh, in return, I'm going to give you a, a dream harder. Mm, dream harder. Okay. All right, Dream Harder and Harbour Vision from the 320 at Wolverhampton. That's what we are going to record uh, when we get around to it. Maybe next week, maybe the week yeah, after. Yeah, we are, we are holidaying we'll together, so um, we will, we are holidaying we will be uh, selfishly uh, enjoying that. Uh, but mm. yeah, we will get that out as soon as we can. Coming to an ear cinema near you soon. <laughs> a cinema. All right, well, thank you so much. For that. I had a great time. I really enjoyed the Rain King so much. I appreciate. And we didn't get any insane alternative pitches about open heart surgeries with tears or anything. No, I... They're actually both, they're both pretty yeah, straight-laced. Yeah, I've, I've, I've scaled back quite wildly on the mescaline that I consume on a daily basis and it seems to have stopped all kind of random uh, deer imagery that uh, was previously affecting oh. me, man, so... That is both... Both good news and a terrible shame at the same know. time. Well, we'll have some more. Maybe next week. Let's see what we can do. All right. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Well, until that time, you take care of yourself and you take care of your loved ones and your family and everybody out there. Please look after each other and make sure that you're all safe and happy and in uh, having lovely times. Absolutely. I completely second that. And uh, thank you so much, man. Uh, catch you guys uh, on the flip-flop. Bye. Bye. Well... There we have it. Another episode of Racehorse Movies is over. We both hope you had as much fun listening as we did coming up with these films and recording our pitches. If you enjoyed this, please share it around with your friends and loved ones. If it wasn't your thing, I don't know, maybe share it with someone you miffed with. Who knows? If it's not for them either, maybe you two can build some bridges over that connection. But if you did like picking up what we put down and you fancy checking out some more content from us, and head over to theneverpress.com to take a gander at our novels, poetry, and other bits and bobs. Anyway, 
That's about enough from us. Hope to have you back next time for some friendly chats and barely thought through pitches at Racehorse Movies. Ta-ta. Bye.